This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. In this episode, I welcome Anthony Frausto Robledo back to the podcast. Anthony is a practicing Boston-based architect and AEC technology editor and journalist at Architosh.com. Today, we discuss two of Anthony's recent articles featured on Architosh, highlighting Autodesk. The first article is an interview with Autodesk CEO Andrew Anagnost, and the topic is their Autodesk University announcement of their forthcoming next-gen industry cloud platform for AEC called Forma, which is built upon their SpaceMaker acquisition. The second article is about the recent Nordic Open Letter, which builds upon the 2020 European Open Letter to Autodesk CEO penned by several significant architectural associations regarding, you guessed it, Revit development and value, or lack thereof, as the signatories indicate, as subscription costs have continued to rise. We also discuss a bit of disruption theory, network effects and positive externalities, switching costs and the sunk cost fallacy, how academia fits into the puzzle of technology training and the profession's expectations, how technology developers fit into the puzzle of professional practice operations in regards to dependency on the tech to fulfill business deliverables, dominance and power, Superman syndrome, and a short lesson in railroad track gauges. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you my conversation with Anthony Frausto Robledo. Anthony, welcome back. Thank you. I'm really glad to be back again. Yeah, this is, uh, I think you're the, the most visited guest of the podcast. It's been quite a while, though, since the last time. It has, and I can't even remember the topic that we were talking about last time. It yeah. Probably Apple-related. Well, I'll put some links to it in the uh, in the show notes for the, for if the people like this conversation, they're bound to like those too, right? So I'm looking forward to this. You recently wrote a couple of articles on Architosh. So you're the editor of Architosh. I'd love maybe give a, a brief intro about about that catch people up on who you are but like I, the meat of this episode is really about these these two these two topics that you wrote about one of them about you know, autodesk making plans for the future and kind of previewing those to the public at au and you had a, an interview with the ceo there and then you also kind of had this really great insightful article this great analogy i should say about uh about past technologies and future technologies and kind of where we sit in that and, and kind of, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to jump the shark yet. I want to get, I want to get there when we get there, but I, I really enjoyed that, this, this other article. So I'll link to both of them in the show notes, just so people can read them. If you want to read them before listening, cool. The links are there. If you want to listen to this first and then catch up with the articles later, that's fine too, of course. So Anthony, give us a kind of a quick synopsis of who you are, what you do, and and your kind of particular perspective on AEC and technology in the industry. Well, I'm an architect, and I have been one for a long time now, but I've been the editor of Architosh.com uh, for 21 years, 22 years now. 
And um, so I do two things. I practice architecture and I write about the digital technologies that affect it. Architosh is really famous because in 1999, at some of the darkest hours for Apple in the late 90s, we came along and started to address the informational needs of users in AEC, but mostly in architecture specifically, who are still fighting for the Mac and were on the Mac platform like myself. And over the last, I'd say the last decade, we've shifted that focus to broaden beyond the Mac. And that probably began when Apple came out with the iPhone in 2007, and especially accelerated with the iPad in 2011 now, right? So for the last decade, we have been talking about all technologies across all devices, platforms, impacting AAC-related industries. And I would say that my unique vantage point that I offer the industry in terms of perspective comes from the fact that I am a practitioner and not just a writer about these technologies, but I, I live in the trenches with all the difficulties and issues that everyone else is living with. Yeah. And I think that timeline kind of matches up with when I first became familiar with Architosh being an early Mac and you know, Form Z and MicroStation on the Mac user from way back in the day and kind of religiously following the the newsletter, the blog. And I, I what I, I guess I appreciate about this kind of constant voice that you have in on the website and in the long form format, not unlike this podcast, I guess, and in you you tend to dig pretty deeply and not just you're not just linking out to other stories, but you're connecting dots and you're going in depth and you're really thinking about where the, where things are heading and kind of tracking, especially, you know, I remember the, the, there's been so much kind of consternation about Apple hardware over the years and pro level machines, right? Mac pro, iMac pro, like all of these things have just kind of been the things that a lot of frustrated Apple users in the AEC space have kind of honed in on and then uh for for things to truly change in dramatic ways hardware wise but not necessarily software wise and i think it's kind of industry um problem like it's it's industry scale problem of not that many tools still being available on the mac i wouldn't say um we're 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 hurting too much there's definitely options out there but um it is interesting to see kind of the 800 pound gorilla is still not on the Mac. Right. And that's um, potentially changing with things moving into the cloud, right. Where we're accessing thing through accessing software through SAS models in the browser um, more and more so all the time. So it's been fascinating journey to kind of go along that with you and to have that constant voice, like you said, 21 years, it's a long time. Yeah. It feels like a forever actually. And, um, but I still enjoy it immensely because I keep learning. And um, when I started this, I didn't have a background in journalism other than participating in the, the theory praxis journal at my architectural college and the school newspaper kind of stuff. Um, but I've always enjoyed writing and I've always enjoyed, enjoyed teaching and explaining things. So when I jumped into this, um, it very much was initially about sort of helping myself to some degree as a architect on the Mac platform, but I soon got very excited about helping others uh, kind of, you know, the, I don't know, back then it seemed like we were like the rebel alliance against the big empire. 
<laughs> so as a current Star Wars fan enjoying the Andor series immensely, it's yes. fun to kind of think about the origins of Arkatosh because of that series. The origins of the Rebel Alliance. Yeah, the origins of the Rebel Alliance. Exactly. Um, but, awesome. you know, in all seriousness, um, what's fun about those kinds of stories and these analogies is that they they do bear out, you know, real emotions with the technologies that we actually do have and enjoy and love. And for me, I think it's really important that we use tools that we love. I think when you are using a tool that you really, really enjoy um, and you're very, very connected to, I think you perform your best work. I'm smiling because let's talk about Revit, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, talking about software that, that people, people love and people love to hate. I mean, this is one of those things where people long for that relationship with the tools they use every day. You know, like there's tools in my actual toolbox, in my actual physical workshop that are old and beat up and patinaed and they are my favorite tools and they've been through everything with me. Right. And they're the go-to tools, the ones you pull out on practically every project and you'll never get rid of them. And, and there's some, there's some newer tools that never, never even get used because the old tools will, will work even if they're not exactly the right tool, they just feel better for some reason. I, I, there's a lot of analogies with digital tools in that way too. Right. And I think that's why people do like using the Mac. I mean, just to get back to that, right. There's, there's something for, for certain people, that's something that, that really matters to them. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we're in that boat. Um, so I, I just want to, it's kind of funny, right? Because Revit is kind of the industry's whipping boy when it comes to a tool that a lot of people use that they don't enjoy using. And not to say like, that's just a total generalization, right? There's a lot of people making a fantastic living using Revit all the time. And there's a lot of people who have made a living knowing how to use Revit in an expert way and teaching others how to do the same thing. And I mean, the industry does, for the most part in North America, at least run off Revit. So it's, uh, it's pretty interesting to, uh, to think about that. So I, I just thought it would, it would be fun to start off that way because you, you just left that door wide open for me. <laughs> no, not a problem. And, you know, just to add to that, there are many people who absolutely love Revit. Mm -hmm. And some of the people who are the Revit open letter signatories, the people who are passionately against the open letter, uh, uh, for I say not against, but for the open letter, are are, are self-professed Revit fanboys or girls, sure. um, and um, and so you know you're right. People do get connected to the technology that that investment in technology that we make to our tools uh, has a huge impact on the market dynamics as well, and that that's part of the reason why I took this path when I wrote this. The latest epic on Arkatosh, mm -hmm. um, because I wanted um, to talk about the dynamics of software adoption uh, and the nature of these dynamics as they relate to the fact that um, the net benefits for the adoption of a system increase as more people adopt the system. Mm -hmm. These network effects are very real and very tangible, um, and they have significant value to the equation of how you think about the tools that you are using. And um, it didn't seem fruitful this time with this second Nordic open letter to take the path that I took the first time, which was let's talk to some disgruntled um, users. 
Let's talk to some uh, resellers on other platforms and the same platform. And let's talk to some competitors. You know, that path was interesting and enlightening to hear the emotions behind why people were so um, passionate about writing this angry, you know, 2020 version of the open letter. But this time I didn't want to take that path. I wanted to do something that I thought would be contribute to the dialogue that can get us to a better place in the industry. One of the things that Andrew says in, in your article on, on Forma. So this is Andrew Agonost, Anagnost, who is the CEO of, of Autodesk. He says, everyone involved in architecture, including tool providers, needs to reimagine themselves for the profession to survive. And I, I think that that's, it's really interesting to, to be putting that out there. And, and I think, you know, part of that is, is them saying, we're going to solve for the technology piece of that, but there's other pieces of that. And you talk about some of those in your article, right? The, the economic side of that, the practice side of that, there's, there's other parts that architects have to be responsible for. And I think one thing that I always try to keep in mind as I, as I read these, you know, this is basically forecasting the future by a tech CEO and, and talking about these things is that architects, this, I say it all the time. There's two things architects hate the way things are and change. Right. And it's, it's architects in these open letters are demanding more from Autodesk and other software companies, I'm sure. But the, the Autodesk is the one who's been named because everybody who's signing these letters relies on them for their business. And, and yet, what are they doing for their own business to take advantage of these things? Like it's, it's very interesting to me to think about this from a training point of view. I mean, I was actually really surprised to hear from you at the beginning of the episode that firms are asking for AI driven solutions because I, I wonder how much they're investing in those kinds of solutions now or research into those to understand if that's what they really want or not. Like I, I could see a tech company saying, this is how we're going to approach it. Like that's because that's what they're doing with SpaceMaker, right? Mm -hmm. But I was surprised to hear that firms are asking for that because I, the, from the most, for the most part, I see firms struggling to adopt technology, to invest in technology, in new technology, I should say, new workflows, new ways of doing work. And because it's, it's all about, higher efficiency in the way that we've always done things, right? Which is why there is so many complaints about Revit and the tools that are broken that have never been fixed kind of a thing. Like just fix the tools that are there is what a lot of people talk about all the time. And these companies have no clue what it takes to develop software, how much money it takes, how much time it takes. And so, I mean, for, for Andrew to say, this is going to take a long time, this basically saying like, this is not going to happen overnight. Don't expect it to happen overnight. It's going to take a long time. I'm sure that turns a lot of people off, but, but also like, they just have no idea what it actually takes to do it. And from everybody, from everybody that I know that is on the, the tech and the software side, every, on that side, they know how hard it is. They know how tall of an order that is. And especially when people say, I want it fast, right? Uh, I want it now. I want this new technology yesterday is, is just coming from a place of not understanding what it's actually like. So I, there, there was a lot in there. I, I realized I was rambling, but I think it's interesting that 
a software company, going back to this quote, is saying that the profession has to reimagine themselves in order to survive. And, and again, you, you kind of talked about some different ways in which the profession needs to tackle that for themselves. And Autodesk is saying, we've got the tech part, right? You've got other things to do, though, for it to, in order for it to be successful. You want to talk about what some of those other ways are? Because, again, like I see these, these architectural firms, I guess, hoping that this tech is going to solve it all for them. Yeah, no, I don't think it's going to solve it all for them. You know, I've been talking to um, many firms related to the open letter and, and firms that are not related to the open letter. One of the things that I ask everyone now is I ask them to give me to give me an average assessment of the average skill of someone on their chosen platform from A to Z, A being a newbie and Z being, you know, Master Yoda level abilities, um, I, I asked them, where is your average user on that spectrum, an alphabetic spectrum? And they generally say somewhere in the middle between like M and R, right? Which is um, related to, and let me just back up for a second. I've been working on trying to put some economic math to the problem of how beneficial it is to train people mm-hmm. to get more advanced skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taken basically the alphabet and broke it into six groups. So there's beginner, there's advanced beginner, there's intermediate, advanced intermediate, there's expert and advanced expert. So where, what letters exactly, you know, there's five or six letters per group or something like four to five letters per group, you know, so um, when someone's on, when their average user, like a big, their average Revit user is somewhere between M and P. Okay. But um, Jens at Big will say, but we have a lot of people who are actually in the expert category and some who are maybe advanced experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they can do so many amazing things that they do because they have a good number of experts. Mm-hmm. And um, you'd have to, you'd have to have a good number expert users to do things. Now the average architectural firm in America is a small firm, mm-hmm. right? You know mm-hmm. that, you know, 85% of all firms are, are small majority. Yeah. Majority. So small firms say a 10 person firm, that firm may have their best Revit user may be barely into the export category group, you know, or an advanced intermediate person, like a very advanced intermediate, but not expert. And everyone else is going to be many notches, many letters below them. So the way I look at it is um, if you talk to architects who have not jumped to Revit, who are clinging on to platforms they've been using for 25 years, maybe they haven't jumped to BIM. Um, When you really look at a lot of these folks who are, some might say they're stuck. They are almost uniformly uh, on the expert side of the spectrum. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is um, they've had a lot of time in the platform and they've accrued a lot of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, two, they didn't want to jump ship from whatever minority alternative platform they're on. So they dub- redoubled their efforts to prove that they can be just as effective on their tool of choice. Um, 
And these people uh, have acquired skills in the sense that they know not only that there are maybe dozen ways of doing things, a certain thing, but they know exactly what is the best way in certain circumstances. They have acquired uh, advanced skills in knowing how to customize the interface, to optimize it for their specific workflows. They've maybe acquired scripting skills. And some of them, the most advanced users, the expert users, the ex, you know, the expert, the advanced experts, and I differentiate between advanced experts and experts as people in advanced experts can code a little bit. They can, they can get behind the hood of a tool. Mm-hmm. And that's where you find people like on PowerCAD, for instance, like a platform no one talks about anymore. But the few people who talk to me about that tool, they can code. They can script. They they have uh, incredible skills. So where I'm going with this is, if you put a person who is uh, an advanced beginner in Revit, and you compare what they can get done in a day or a week against someone who is a expert Revit user, what kind of delta do you expect to see between that work product? Right. That's a really good question to ask, and. When I ask different people, if I ask a BIM trainer, if I ask a Revit trainer, they're going to throw a big number at it because they're promoting training, right? Mm -hmm. They want to promote training. If I ask someone who's a digital design director, they're going to put a slightly different number on it. And if you ask the actual user, especially the more beginner one, they're going to devalue the impact they have as a beginner compared to someone who's been using the tool for a long time. So the truth is those numbers are unknown in the industry. No one has been benchmarking any of this stuff. The tools don't benchmark it. Research in academia is not benchmarking it. No one's benchmarking it. So one of the things I'm trying to do is figure out if, in truth, it actually is economically better to stay on a platform you're on than jump to maybe the majority platform, which is in a net benefit you in, in, in positive externalities and, and network effects right? Um, like some of the ones that we talked about in this article, mm-hmm. like, like access to experienced people mm-hmm. um, or, or, or jump, you know, is it better to jump or is it better to stay where you are? And I think that's a tough calculus to come up with, but I think there is a way to, to do it. I think there's a way of thinking through that problem. Um, and I also think there's a way of thinking through benchmarking tools so that the people who are in the open uh, Revit letter group, some of them, as you saw in the article, talked about, well, we're actually trying this now. Um, Zaha Deed, uh, they said their, their principal in charge of this digital stuff, um, said, we're looking at everything now, right? Other people are saying, we're looking at other BIM solutions. Uh, we're using them now. We're going to benchmark them in two years. Well, what does that benchmarking look like? And how do you share that with the rest of the industry so right. they too can maybe benchmark? Right. So I think there's a lot of things that are not tried yet in the industry. And so when the industry throws up its hands and starts to cry about lack of efficiency and, a lot, and, and rising costs, what they're basically saying is that the economics are not making sense for them anymore and it's hurting them. Well, they also are lacking the skill set to do something about that in a way that is the way people do it in big business, the way consultants come in and help big companies sort out problems like IBM or something. They don't have the means to those, those, that those assets and skill sets. Um, 
And that's a problem that I think should be solved in academia. Hmm. Because I think it's kind of silly that, um, I think it's really silly that uh, you can have colleges of architecture um, put robots or robotic arms and this kind of emerging tech inside of their labs and classrooms and so forth and talk to their students and the parents of the students to say, we're preparing your kids for the future because this, this tech over here is the future. But at the same time, not prepare them to have the, um, the understanding of how you can optimize your own industry and giving, giving them the skill set to go out and do that. And that's something I mentioned in the article too, when I talk a little bit about academia's role in all of this academia's role in contributing to this um, cycle that perpetuates the snowball effect where the tool that the platform that gets out a little bit ahead of everyone else gains these network network effects that these mm-hmm. positive externalities that then cause the snowball to go even faster and then the next thing you know everyone is invested in one tool more than um, every all the others combined and you have some holdouts. And, you know, if we wanted to talk about the holdouts, that's an interesting question, right? Mm-hmm. Who are the holdouts and why do they hold out? Mm. I, I mentioned earlier why they hold out, right? Because they've developed ad- advanced skill capacities. But somewhere in the process of, advan- of developing those skill sets on these alternative platforms who end up in the minority market share group, they have acquired some kind of um, knowledge about how their own um, increase in their skills contributes to the bottom line in their practice. And they, and they know this firsthand because those practices are often small and they've experienced this in a very intimate way where it's not something that is being told to them. They've experienced it because they've lived it. And one of the, I have this theory that if I go around the world and continue to ask all the largest firms in the world that are using uh, Revit about where their average user is, they will all be between M and R. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just going to be the case. But if I go around the world and talk to some of uh, the firms that maybe are smaller on alternative platforms, I may get a different kind of answer. I may get a a little bit more advanced level answer. You know, it may, it, it may be a little, the needle may be farther to the left or to the right, if we're looking at the alphabet. And I think where I'm going with this is I think this kind of knowledge should be studied in the industry. It should be benchmarked. There should be efforts underway to understand this. Um, and that's one thing that people can do in response to um, a tool that is um, taking over the world, but somehow under deliver, underperforming. Yeah. Right? Well, and it just gets more and more complex every year, right? I mean, there's there's its its own kind of innovation curve and versus adoption curve. Like you're 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 have adopted you've adopted the tool in many cases, but you can't keep up with even the tool set itself, right? That the nuance of the program itself and the year over year changes are things that people can be extremely unaware of, don't even know certain features exist. I, I can't tell you how many times. I'm, and I'm sure it happens every single day where it's like, oh, I didn't even know it could do that. Like that, that's a common statement 
for the software that somebody has been using over a decade, right? Mm-hmm. It happens all the time. Um, there's there's a lot of things in there that we could we could talk about. I think one of the things that that is interesting to me about change and change management and why somebody might not want to adopt a new tool, and I I think that maybe a similar vision or future could be cast for forma itself right which is because like you said autodesk has been through this before they they were successful in implementing the new 800 pound gorilla to kind of upset the old 800 pound gorilla which was autocad right um and and obviously people still use that and there's uh, other people who are in a similar story different tool set right there's there's people out there who are have not moved to the next thing, but Autodesk, I would, would probably venture to say they feel successful about getting people into the Revit tool, but they have a sim, a road ahead that where, where man, it's going to take a while for that software to get enough functionality for people to want to use it and, and to put their business on the line to deliver a project using it. I I see that's why new software has such a hard time getting adopted too, right? Because it doesn't do everything from beginning to end or it doesn't do it all really well. And so now you're kind of cobbling together a series of tools to accomplish similar results to what you could have done in one in which you were maybe a quote unquote expert in. And uh, anyway, I I feel like there's, there's so many things kind of fighting against the change here. Um, some of the things that that I've witnessed myself are obviously a lot of training. There's a lot of encoded knowledge in the workforce in a particular tool and your consultants, right, who use the similar same software, let's just say, in this example. And so moving to something else would be extremely difficult because you have to convince everybody else to hopefully do the same thing with you. And the learning curve is not a, an overnight thing, right? It's not going to happen. So how do you do that on top of the deadlines you already have? And this is why I think so many people feel stuck and they're so pissed that the tool doesn't seem to be getting better or delivering more value for the higher costs, right? Is like, we can't change because we're so embedded in the tool that we have and it's not getting better. And there are other options out there, but man, the learning curve is going to, we, we can't take the time to do that. So how do we do that? Yeah. It's um, it's very true. It's uh, all this technology takes a lot of effort. I think we might address this issue by thinking about just the nature of the device, right? So if we think about, we go back to IBM in the mainframe phase of technology, right? At that time, during the era of IBM. They were the big 800-pound gorilla in the market. And all the focus on investment, innovation, and company creation at that time was directed around serving the interests of people who were on the dominant device at the time, which was the mainframe. Um, At that moment, they controlled um, the platform, and they they dominated the device. Um, When the PC came during that era, it started to get a little bit more democratized and it started to get a little easier, right? Um, uh, we Regular people could have a computer now called the PC. Um, we still ended up with uh, a single kind of dominant platform, Windows, controlled by Microsoft. 
And all the focus of investment and innovation and company creation was still directed serving the interests of the dominant client at the time, which was the Windows PC. I mean, there was the Mac out there, but for the most part, we all know that Windows won the day and essentially crushed the Mac, right? By the Mm -hmm. late 80s, the Mac was in single digit share. Right. Um, Similar to the share of all the, what they used to call IBM and Big Blue and the Seven Dwarfs or something like all the smaller competitors it had. So, but we ended up with, we ended up with a lot of client devices made by a lot of different people, right? Mm-hmm. You had HP, Compaq. So it wasn't just one company dominating that space. It was much more pluralized. Now we're living in the cloud era and um, the cloud is the platform and the, the, the winning devices um, there is more than ever, but the device at the time right now where the real power is and where investment is directed and company creation is around mobile devices. It's around the smartphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the big device that dominates everything. Uh, and when you throw iPads and or mobile tablets in there, it gets even larger. So the PC now is a much smaller place in terms of sheer numbers, but it too is still an end device that people are using and people are still using mainframes. So, you know, we keep using the things that we used that used to be the primary device. They just don't, the investment energy is just not in them anymore. The, the big dollars are in the new technology. But where I'm going with this is that um, there is a pattern in this where things get more democratized. So if we look at the platform today as the cloud, no one controls it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have um, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, um, even IBM. Everyone's a cloud player, kind of. And um, we have a whole range of, uh, industry develop around the cloud that would, couldn't work without the cloud. Airbnb couldn't work without Uber couldn't work without the cloud. So the cloud is where everything's at now. And one thing that, that Andrew's saying about Forma is that's really spot on is he's recognizing that the center of computing has moved to the cloud mm-hmm. and to mobile devices. Mm-hmm. And yet, the tool that they own and control that has real power in the market. I'm going to talk about power just briefly in a moment yeah. is a tool that comes from the previous era. Yep. Right. And so if we look at what happened to the companies that were developing around the mainframe and then when the PC came and then the PC and then when the web and the cloud came is there's a whole, they, 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 they fell into the background a bit. And I think Autodesk doesn't want that to happen to them. I think they're trying, as they said, rightfully so, during their keynote, they aim to disrupt themselves. Yeah. And that is the key term. I, this is disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not alone because there's some new people out there like Infernia and Snaptrude. There are some new, new era devices that are cloud mobile first or at least cloud centric. Right. And they are... They're going at the BIM industry with some different kinds of assumptions sure. about what a BIM tool should be. And I think that is an important aspect to all of this. Yeah. Um, I know people are thinking of like, oh, this is this is great. I spent all this effort getting to Revit and BIM, and now there's this new thing. Well, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, it's going to be a, a decade effort. Right. Yeah, agreed. It it is kind of interesting to think of it on those terms where the thick client that used to be the mainframe and the thin right. client was was all the 
the desktop computers is now further bigger and smaller at the same time, right? Thick client is cloud now, thin client is mobile device. And it's and it's more of a a platform that just accesses via, you know, remote computing, all the heavy lifting that's going on out there. And I, this idea of disrupting themselves makes a lot of sense in that they don't want somebody else to do it to them, right? Um, that that absolutely absolutely makes sense when you hear it. I I just it, it'll be interesting to see that it actually if it actually happens and what that means and, and how long it takes. I mean, he is he's trying to squash expectations of speed and this happening very quickly. Autodesk doesn't seem to do anything very quickly, right? Um, and and but yet it still makes sense to temper expectations. Probably a better way to say it, just to say like this is going to take time to do this, so don't expect it to change. But also like Revit's not going away right now. There, there's a lot of things that have to continue as the new things are being built for someday the full switch over to actually happen, right? And I can that's got to be a long roadmap. Uh, just based on previous performance and experience. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. You've heard about Avail here on the Troxel podcast, and I'm excited to tell you they have a new message for you, my friends. Avail is designed by designers for design professionals, so it's no wonder Avail focuses on visuals in its platform. While Avail has always provided high-resolution previews, There are some new visual enhancements you should know about. These are channel cards and key cards. They're visual gateways to your content, and they're both customizable. Channel cards have been available since Avail Desktop 4.0. Think of them like album covers for each content channel you create. Channel cards are designed to make navigating your firm's assets quick and easy. And with channel cards, the look and feel of Avail conforms with your firm's standards. Next up is key cards, and these are the latest addition to Avail and are available since version 4.3. What are they? Key cards visually group content within a channel, and they derive data from your tags to make finding content easier. So they're created from the work you've already done. By adding custom graphics to your key cards, navigating content within a channel improves immediately. Key cards also drive the breadcrumb trail in the latest Avail Desktop 4.3 release, Navigate through your channels using breadcrumbs. And a new breadcrumb control is displayed on a channel when navigating with key cards. Breadcrumb items allow the user to navigate to the previous state easily. To see all of these new visual enhancements in action, head over to getavail.com to learn more. That's getavail, G-E-T-A-V-A-I-L.com to learn more. And now let's get back to our conversation. You know, of the adoption cycles and, you know, there's going to be um, five phases of people who adopt technology through a long, long curve. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets, it gets very real and interesting when the early majority are now picking up a tool. Yeah. Um, but we're probably year, a few years away from where the early majority group, which is a big group, start to jump into forma. Now, the Zaha Deeds of the world, the bigs of the world, they are going to jump. A lot of these people on the open letter group will might jump into form as soon as there's something to jump into. Some of them already explored SpaceMaker. Sure. Some of them were not impressed with SpaceMaker. Mm. Um, they, the, the difference with the letter group 
their needs and and maybe where Andrew is pointing Autodesk in terms of AEC is I think the group is thinking about um, technology transformation in a different uh, different kind of time uh, 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 frame of reference. Mm. Um, and I think for Autodesk, they have to be aware of being disrupted. And so they need to, they can't, you know, they always, if you, if you have read a lot about disruption and how companies get disrupted, it's when you actually are paying attention to the majority of your customers and just only paying attention to the vast majority of your customers, you can get disrupted from something below you. Sure. So I think they're being smart about looking at disruption from the vantage point of uh, focus and who you, you want to be able to focus on your customers, but you can't take your eye off what's coming up underneath you. And, um, you know, right now the cell phone smartphone is the most universal device in the world. I mean, that's the thing when the mainframe was around only big companies had it. When the PC came around, it was first, then it was companies and people. And then when the web came, it pushed the PC to er- almost almost everybody, but not around the whole world, right? Only mm-hmm. to in advanced nations with people who had money. The smartphone, however, has much greater penetration around the whole world. It's phenomenal. So if we think about the next device and what that is, will that take us to complete coverage, essentially, of the entire planet? If it's AR glasses, will they be cheap enough for every human being to wear? How does that change the nature of computing for us? And how does that change where the center of innovation, investment, and company creation goes? And how might that impact AEC? I think these are some of the longer time frame perspectives that we that people need to pay attention to. Uh, meanwhile, you know, uh, the thing that I like to point out to um, some people who are frustrated with Revit is to, to recognize the fact that Autodesk has real power in AEC. And um, I read an interesting article recently that I reference a lot in the in the article that I've written inside of the upcoming newsletter from Benedict Evans, who's a British uh, tech analyst. And he, mm-hmm. he talked about power in one of his articles. And he said that power is, what power is, is being able to make people do things that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. So when we hear, um, and that's different than dominance, you can have, like everyone talks about big tech and the dominance of big tech. But can Apple really make you do things that you don't want to do? Like, does Google really have the power to make you do only your, like to say you're only going to do internet searches on our search engine? They don't. You, you're not forced to. You can try the others. There's, there are several. But when you hear open letter firms telling you that they're not going to be able to get contracts if they don't deliver a Revit deliverable. Right. That's, that's power. Right. They're, they're, when you hear them saying, we didn't choose this for the capabilities of the tool. We, are, we, to, we chose it because um, all the consultants are using it and we need to be able to work with them better. Right. That, that's when you're, you're doing something you don't maybe want to really do, but there are these other incentives that are causing you to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think technology in general, um, as we move forward to these, when the 
when the center of the industry shifts, power can shift, and especially with the main platforms. But will it shift with some of the main app winners on these platforms, mm-hmm. right? Adobe has managed to put Photoshop on iPad in a really beautiful way. I don't know the details of how successful that is. But no one, no BIM leader out there has managed to put, to reimagine what BIM could be in this new cloud-centric world. Everyone's still on a desktop tool, essentially. They're surrounded by little tools that go around them that do AEC things, whether it's BIMX for Graphisoft or Nomad for Vectorworks or all the little tools that Bentley and Autodesk have that do Mm -hmm. very precise things. But, you know, there's never going to be Revit in the the web browser. That's what we've heard from Autodesk. That's what Andrew said specifically. Yeah. Well, and look at those platforms and how long they've been around. Like the legacy of the code base is just, it's a, it's an old tool and it's, it's not a modern tool. Like, and, and by definition, it, it can't do the things that people want these new inventions to do in with old software. Like it, it's just, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Right. And so the, the, the point about power is that um, with Forma, Autodesk is going to, be very challenged to maybe maintain its power. But it depends on what Forma really is. Um, a lot of people, like if you read, uh, there's there's venture capitalists out there that just talk about network effects. To them, to them they say that uh, 70% of the value of a platform or the value of tech is actually in network effects rather than the actual product itself. Um, and they advise that, you know, when you go into when you're investing or you're a startup guy or whatever, that you got to go for the kill. You want the whole market, right? So you're going to, you're going to avail yourself of every network effect, effect possible to give you, uh, you know, advantages, unfair mm-hmm. advantage. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's unfair advantage, but advantages so that you can get the whole market. So you can annihilate competition. But the thing about Forma is, when we listen to auditors talk about Forma and they're saying to the open letter group, we're going to address your concerns about working with non Autodesk tools. We're going to address your concerns about you owning the data that it's your intellectual property. You've designed these buildings. Are they really, are they really going to deliver that? Or is this just a platform that is going to, you know, going to aim to design, to crush all other platforms. Right. And is it going to be a platform that has such powerful network effects too, that it's going to have real power and mm-hmm. people are going to be, have no choice, but to use it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the thing that's interesting about this, because when we look at the whole AC industry and we look at the tools that are on the construction side, they're extremely democratized and pluralized. There's a lot of from Oracle to Procore in the United States to Autodesk to all these tools around the world, there are extremely good um, competitors vying for everyone's attention. And um, that's what's missing to some degree on the design authoring side, right? Right. Yeah. When you, you mentioned earlier that you feel like academia needs to play a a stronger role in the technology training side. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So how did that, how would that play into like this, this part of the narrative, right? Because if it is reinforcing of a particular tool set by nature, because you, in academia, what do, what can you do? 
they don't, for the most part, they don't teach software as it is right now because they're busy teaching other things, design, some pro practice, very little, right? Structures, things like that. You know, when I was teaching at university, there was, there, they got to the point where they were not teaching anybody how to use a particular program. They just got everybody LinkedIn learning. Like the whole campus just had the ability to, to tune into LinkedIn learning and learn something and apply it to their studio course um, because they couldn't squeeze it in. They couldn't squeeze anything else into the curriculum as it stood. But if they do have to pick, how does that paint a future of, you know, options? I'm, I'm not quite sure that it could. Yeah. My belief is I don't think stu- uh, academia should be picking the winners. I don't think they should be contributing to the cycle. I don't think that academia should be part of the network effects. I think what schools should do, or they should do two things. One is, like you said, they should give all students the resources to learn anything they want. So the LinkedIn thing sounds fantastic, Mm -hmm. right? And there could be more than LinkedIn. There could be lots of different ways they can expose students to stuff. Because what you want students to do is you want to you want them to interrogate the terrain of digital tools mm-hmm. so that they can approach digital tools with an entrepreneurial mindset, not an end user mindset. They want to be entrepreneurial. The industry is changing dramatically as we go towards the future of automation. And there's all this talk about like, oh, will AI take over architecture? Will AI take over this? Will robotics take over construction? Well, we don't know. We honestly don't know these, these, these questions, but what we should be doing is getting students to think about these questions very deeply. And to do that, we need to put them in more of an entrepreneurial framework where they can use their, they're an architecture school, they're creatives. They should be using their creative capacity to think through these problems. Then you marry that with business and economic education, not any business and economic education, but um, the business of design. Mm-hmm. And there are some good people out there who have written excellent stuff on the business of design. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll mention one in a second, but, but when it comes to economics, there is incredible education out there in business schools about technology and economics and business. I think students need to be exposed to that and so that they can have um, a framework and some skill sets to um, think about how they are going to optimize technology to do the things that they envision need to be done to not only survive automation, but to thrive in automation. And yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I so I want you to, rem- to, to name who you're going to name, but I, and I'm glad to hear you say this because I was, I was, I'm tracking totally with this because it really is about, a different way of applying technology to design practice specifically. And that does not mean through drawing, right? It, it means in systems thinking. It means in generating workflows and building off automation and using it so that we can really be doing our most valuable and meaningful part, contribution to the process where, where humans matter the most. And, and actually leveraging technology because I feel like um, the past has really been a, like the fight between profession and academia has been about preparation for 
for being the CAD monkey, right? There's been this kind of fight there where schools are like, no, that's not what we train people for. And businesses are like, well, that's what I want to hire somebody to do. And they're at odds about that kind of a thing. So I'm, I'm glad that you kind of cleared that up for me because I was, I was interested to hear your take on that. But I do, I do agree. It, it really needs to be about kind of these applying technology in really useful ways that I don't think necessarily strategically happens in firms because of the legacy mindset of like, we hire people to draw, right? Those mm -hmm. are very different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I was involved with a tech startup in Boston several years ago, there was a MD in the group and he was learning everything about the architecture industry. And when I would characterize um, kind of what you said about this rift between architecture school and practice, he said that that felt very similar to what's been happening to doctors. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think that one has to be very careful about uh, letting industry dictate the terms of education because industry today is extremely self-serving and profit-oriented. Mm -hmm. And we're experiencing this, or those who are in medicine are experiencing this, and those who are close to those fields know a little bit about those pressures. Um, but I think, I think part of the challenge is you do need to justify the cost of education in the United States. It's very expensive, right? Um, and so on the one hand, you could understand why schools of architecture would prepare students for the tools that are most in demand. That's very understandable. But at the same time, that's a short-term thinking kind of view. Right. Right. If you really care about the students' welfare, their social welfare throughout their career, and if you even are concerned about your own welfare as an architecture school, you better be thinking about the long term picture for the profession of architecture. Right. And in this particular time, I think people need to be thinking about that in a more complicated way. So it's I have recently encountered learning about some schools. There's a school now, a new fourth architecture school in New Zealand that is, is really stepping out of the old mode, old mode, mode, um, or mold of architecture school. And where, you know, the education of architecture architects was, is so silo oriented. You do your projects on your own. You come into studio present on your own. Mm -hmm. Then you go, into the world and you don't do anything on your own. Yeah. You're in a team. This was the point that was made by uh, Lane Godwin, who was the former partner at Foster who, um, Partners, who was quoted in the article about um, that instruction of technology in schools isn't really happening the way it should be happening. Yes, you can, you can actually have instruction about Revit or Rhino or SketchUp, but what's missing is instruction that teaches people how to work together in groups, doing the kinds of things that um, firms are actually doing on the scale of projects that firms generally do, right? Not these little kind of projects that we do in school or um, which tend to be on the smaller side um, because that's what we can kind of tackle reasonably in a studio where we're doing all the work ourselves, right? I know, I know I'm, I'm citing how education was for when we were in school more. Mm -hmm. And I know that it has been changing, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I know that from just critting um, and seeing how students are working, but they're still doing their projects by themselves. And I think that that's a problem. And I think that needs to change. Yeah. Agreed. You, I want to get to your other article as well. Um, the Revit open letter through the lens of Cordynomics. And I, I just want to open up with this quote that you start the article with by economist Milton Friedman. He said, the most important single fact about a free market is that no exchange takes place unless both parties benefit. And I mean, this gets back to the letter, but, but the whole idea of Cordynomics and, and where your analogy is coming from. Can you paint that? Let's paint that picture and, and jump into that part of the conversation because I, I this is, I, I think, pretty insightful. I'm sure. So I have been reading a lot about the history of technology since the Industrial, industrial Revolution. And I've written about some people like Carlotta Perez several times on Architosh, who I think is the best offers the best model of five phases of uh, techno-economic paradigm shifts since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Um, So in in the fifth era that we're in, we're in the the information age. We're in uh, the age that was born when uh, the silicon chip was born in in the 70s. And we're still in this phase. But the next phase, I'm not sure what, that's going to be called. But um, the bottom line is I've been reading a lot about economics. And so I came across um, these papers uh, and specifically um, Paul Anthony David's uh, landmark article from 1985 called Clio and the Economics of QWERTY that talked about the keyboard layout that we all use, the QWERTY keyboard layout, Mm -hmm. and how that came about and how that may have represented market failure. And um, so the history of that, just briefly for the listener, is that our keys are the way they are positioned on their keyboard, Q-W-E-R-T-Y on the top left, uh, largely because when typewriters were invented, they were trying to figure out how to make these machines, and they had these arms that would move up and, and, and crash into the, the bar and, the, and, the, and the, the, I don't know, ink-infused paper. I don't know what they call it now. Yeah, that ribbon. Yeah, that ribbon, right? And if you type too fast, these bars would come up at the same time and they'd, they'd get locked together. They'd kind of crash and uh, that would mess everything up. So the way I understand it is the keyboard was laid out optimally to prevent that problem from happening. It has nothing to do with typing speed and it has nothing to do with a balance of what words would you type on the left hand versus the right hand? And it, turn, it turns out QWERTY is more left hand dominant. So we're not, it's not balanced. It's like, it's like having a, I don't know, four engine, uh, four cylinder engine in like, I don't know, two of the cylinders are kind of working like at half level or something like that. Um, so it turns out that that mechanical problem actually got solved rather quickly in the evolution of the history of the, typewriter the machine itself uh, right yeah. yeah the machine itself right but what happened was um we ended up with the query query layout um because it won over the market because someone opened a school and sort of training people in this layout and those first typists which were, i'm sure were almost all women 
um, were like the first versions of software yeah. because their skill set uh, had a technical interrelatedness with these machines. Right. And they were compatible, in other words. So that was how um, Clio and the economics of QWERTY came into the equation in my article because what's distressing about reading about the open letter is that we hear people talk about Revit, for example, not being multi-threaded enough compared to some of its rivals. And it's very inefficient in utilizing today's chips, which are multi-threaded, multi-cored, and can run many threads at once. And, um, you know, the question was, there was another key, there were other keyboard layouts like uh, Dvorak keyboard Mm -hmm. that, uh, like the Navy studied in the, just after World War II and and, and improved was more efficient and would save substantial amount of time when the net uh, return on investment would be worth switching to. It didn't happen. The market would have none of it. Everyone settled on QWERTY and it was totally entrenched. Sunk so, costs, it, right? Like it's, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, typing doesn't seem like a big deal to anyone anymore. So if that, that if that's market failure um, and it, in terms of some loss proficiency, because we're on the wrong keyboard, so be it. People will just move on. But a BIM tool that's a market failure is a bigger deal. So um, we can go through some other market failures that we all know, like uh, VHS versus Betamax. Mm-hmm. Now, in the end, that didn't matter. We have Netflix now. We stream movies, right? But that was another kind of market failure. Another one we could debate whether the Mac versus the PC was a market yeah. failure. Right. Um, so I've been fascinated with these things for a couple reasons. One was um, David's articles um, pointed to something that was really interesting called defining path dependencies or path dependency, I'm sorry, um, which is when it roughly means when a technology is path dependent, it means that future innovations uh, on that line of, his, uh, of technology are constrained to the limitations of this kind of non a reversible dynamic in the evolution of that technology. Mm. A good example is maybe the best example is rail gauge, right? The distance between train tracks, mm-hmm. which the, as you know, the, the, the history of the train and the railroad started in Britain and rail gauge kind of started at this dimension that maybe is not so optimal for the new kinds of things that we would do today. Sure. So we we're using rail to move things out of mines this was the beginning of the industrial revolution, um, coal mines, right? Those kinds of things and other products. Um, but no one back then was imagining bullet trains and people back then weren't imagining the kinds of engines on trains that would change kind of strokes that they'd have and sure. uh, the size of these engines and op- the optimal engineering of these, um, of this technology or things like the BART system in San Francisco, right? The BART system is a really good, interesting story because it's built in a five foot, six inch rail gauge, not the four point, not the four foot, eight and a half inches, which is kind of universally standard everywhere now. Um, so why is that? So when you read the story about why BART went in this unique way, they say, because um, the BART trains were going to have cars that were much lighter. This probably had something to do with energy, right? Because it's electric, right? Um, and these eight put, these 800 pounds of um, 
800 pounds per linear foot class of vehicles on the BART system were subject to wind force in a different way, maybe heavier trains were. Um, And so when they engineers studied this in detail and looked at all the different metrics that would optimize the BART system, they realized that it was most optimal on a wider rail gauge, Hmm. which is the five foot six came in. And um, you could do it for specialized circumstances, right? But you don't need to hook up Amtrak to the BART. They're never going to go across the same tracks. Mm -hmm. But once you've laid a lot of track down and someone else tries to connect, they're going to have to be on the same rail gauge. Otherwise, you're going to have all this earring to your costs, right? This kind of switching costs. And I think this is an interesting analogy to where BIM is because one can say that the RBT file format is like rail gauge. And we can say that the industry would be most optimal if any kind of data, which is a payload, could travel anywhere it needs to travel freely um, and optimally um, on an open standard that was somehow fluid, not one that is a lot of people into some kind of, you know, standard that's closed mm-hmm. and or the rbt file format is closed and if you control platform you can you can gate it and if you can gate it you can keep your rivals out right and so this gets back to where those european organizations are looking at this picture of competitiveness and aec and they're looking at local markets and local tools and local circumstances which are a lot like the bart story where you want to optimize something very ideally around particular needs. Mm-hmm. And it requires that you're that you not go with some kind of standard. You break away from it. And that's more optimal economically to break. And we are in a problem, we're in a state in AC where people can't do that. Um, and or they're struggling to do that. They can, it's not, we don't have a I wouldn't call Autodesk a true monopoly. They have enormous mm-hmm. power, right. but there are, you can, you can leave. You're not trapped. Sure. Well, one of the stories that you have in there, I think it was, was it Zaha or Big who, who went from Revit to Archicad, but ended up coming back, right? I mean, so there was a switch that did happen and then they had to, were ultimately forced. I don't, you don't get into it. Why? But I'm sure there's some interesting stories in there. <laughs> so, yeah. So the story is, is I think um, that, uh, so they had, we were on, they were on Revit and then they jumped to Archicad and then uh, they ended up, there was the, the, it gets to these negative, this externalities, right? The yeah. negative one being that it's hard to find Archicad people, which is what was cited in the article. Right. It's much easier to find Revit people. Yeah. Right. So um, that's a lot like, you know, you can call people like, um, the existing inventory of rail cars, right? They're, they happen to be built for, there's a lot more of them that right. fit on this track, right? right? right. So um, they, they, they didn't tell me much about um, all of the difficulties that they faced with Archicad. I don't think it came down to product, honestly. Mm-hmm. It didn't have to do with product. In fact, yeah. it had to do with these externalities. Yeah, I mean, it really it does. It had to do with the, the efficiency ratio of having more people who can just be pooled from this project, that project. 
And if you, for a while they had overlap, right? So as you're transitioning back, they'd overlap. And I'm sure people were like, no, we want to stay on Archicad. So we were like, no, we should just move over to the one platform. You know, Jen said at one time, he, I asked him if he imagined the ideal system and he painted a picture where Autodesk created the ideal system and you can go end to end and handle anything. Mm-hmm. And I, and he said, I'm not sure if that's very realistic. And I said, no, I don't think it's very realistic right. at all. Right. I think specialization, if you look at the history of technology, it gets more specialized as time goes on. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended my article by noting that the real limit to optimization in, in AAC right now, in terms of these tools is probably industry concentration itself. In other words, the, the company that's too big is trying to do everything for everyone. Yeah. And, um, because you just you you reach critical mass where you're just not swift. Steve Jobs used to say, "If you want to change the world, you only need 25 people." That's we his team for the Mac was 25 people. Mm-hmm. He should have said a corollary, which if you um he should have said a corollary that was like, "If you never want to change the world, have a thousand people or right. something like that," because you're not going to be able to do it with a big team. Yeah. You know, I think. There's a lot of books out there um, that are talking about the exponential speed of change of technology, right? And that's an interesting concept in itself. If we're going faster with technology, it's just not possible for humans to to manage it all. Right. And so it's better to let capital be free to go after all these problems without the um, the, the, the looming threat that they're going to be, they're, they're going to be turned into a feature in the big platform, you know, which is what happens, you know, which is the big complaint about big tech right now is that, you know, you can invest a lot to start a problem, start a company that addresses a very specific problem and be very successful. But then, you know, Apple or Google might just write that feature into their operating system and you're, you're just killed because now it's, you don't have to pay for it anymore. Right. Um, I don't think that AAC solutions, the the problems that the AAC industry faces will be solved that way. Um, I think some of them can and some of them can't. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that, that kind of has been one of Autodesk's big MOs, right. Is, is finding those, purchasing them, integrating them or getting rid of them, right? I mean they're that they're the biggest M&A firm in the business, I would assume, as far as gobbling up tech because of because they can. Um and people I, I just had somebody on the podcast who who was acquired by Autodesk and now is an Autodesk employee and could not be happier. Is so thrilled with the the direction that they're going with their uh, extended reality uh, and having keeping them on and 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 supporting them fully to live out that vision at a larger scale, right? So it, it's not always a, a, a terrible or a sad story, right? A lot of times it is it is good and it is the right path for some firms. But yeah, it, it's, this is a really, really complicated system that we operate within. And it is very difficult to navigate. It's very difficult to switch gears, to, you know, to get back to the idea of switching costs. I mean, they're huge. And I, I don't envy any firm out there who's trying to figure this out, but at the same time, be totally reliant on another company to do it for them, right? And demand it through letters or, you know, just plead <laughs> for things to go better in the future. Uh, it, 
and when when that one company is trying to be all things to all people it's it's hard to it's easy to be lost in in that audience i think as well so it, it is a tough place to be so i i'm not sure where things go from here are you optimistic about where things are headed in this regard i'm not i'm not optimistic that pleading and complaining will ever work um Obdes is a public company yeah they need to please shareholders and right. they're gonna they're gonna do the things that are aimed at the greatest uh, top line and bottom line growth for them and for them, yeah, for them. And that's just smart business. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to do that. Yeah. Right. So um, going after um, high hanging fruit, that's difficult uh, to maybe accomplish, especially on, on 20 year old code, code base. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just very creaky, mm-hmm. not built for the modern world, not built for the cloud. It's just, it's a no-go. And so that's not going to happen. But, you know, the thing is, I think we have to think about um, being optimistic about this industry uh, in, in terms that are a little different. I think we have to ask, is the AC industry best served by one company that is sort of like a super monopoly or mm-hmm. like a monopoly, you know, I like to use industry concentration rather than the term monopoly because that's like a bad word monopoly. Yeah. But, you know, if we look at like, let's just review why monopolies are bad, right? Uh, what, what are the four reasons why monopolies are bad? Well, one is they can fix prices pretty high. And, um, and especially in a market where we have, we have inelastic demand versus elastic demand, you know, meaning that, you know, gasoline is a good is a good example of inelastic demand, right? Um, regardless of the price of gas, we're going to show up at the pump to buy it because we need it. We need to get to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, these tools that the industry is dependent on, we need them, and we're going to pay. Especially if we're entrenched in a platform, we're going to continue to pay right. uh, to the point where it almost breaks us yep. because there's inelastic demand. It's it's more it's not as elastic as it, it could be. It's not elastic as buying uh, different kinds of fruit at the grocery store uh, or deciding which movie to go watch. So that's this this price fixing power is um, upsetting to a lot of people, including me, because uh, as you know, and you're probably aware of, like the unionization movements that are happening in, in the architecture, is that this industry has always been hard to make money in, mm-hmm. and um, with the price of education, especially in the United States, being so high, young people, the millennials and the Gen Z, they're just not going to tolerate this. And I think we're going to lose a lot of great, talented people yeah. in the industry because of these conditions. Um, so I don't like that. Um, I think the declining product quality is it's one of those things where when you've got most of the market and there's not much to gain, what do you do? You turn you your arrow, your cannons to new territory, right? Uh, they said this with the first open one. That was part of their rationale for right. why they dropped the ball. Right. They focus on construction mm-hmm. uh, software. Uh, the loss of innovation incentive, I mean, that's related to that. You just, um, you know, you lose incentive if you don't have competitors. Competitors keep you sharp. Yeah. Um, and lastly, there is, you know, um, this thing called... Um, cost push inflation and um that's another negative for companies have monopoly power it's it's about raising prices but it's they're basically pushing inflation onto you so one way you can look at 
the the rising uh, that the subscription change model is just as a as a method for cost push inflation. Hmm. Um, you know, OPEC does this to the world all the time. They want more profit and they could cut supply and it's just, they have power. Yeah. So if you give companies a lot of power, you're going to deal, you're going to deal with the, 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 the negative end of that power. Um, If you want to do something about it. And I think a more optimistic direction for the industry to go is to recognize that you have to pull some of that power back to you as the end user. And that, that's kind of, I think, the most important message that I would like people to get out of not only this podcast, but the article. What, what are some ways you see that actually happening? How can firms invest in pulling that power back towards themselves? I think the industry needs to recognize what, something really fundamental, which is that the, that the AAC in general is the big laggard in productivity gains um, in the digital era, where other industries have gained substantially in, in, in productivity. It's been so flat. And why is that? There, there was greater productivity gains in the 60s in construction than there, are, there is today. Um, I haven't written enough about this stuff, but I, it's something I want to get into. But other people have written a lot about it. So here's the thing. I think, um, I think we have to look at, if you look at the industries that have gained the most, they're spending larger percentage of their total revenues on digital technologies, architects spend between one and a half to three and a half percent generally. I wouldn't be surprised if someone did a good study. And this was where academia is leaving, kind of disappointing me with the industry. There's no one studying these problems or very few people that I know. I, I don't see them. But someone should be studying these problems. The firms that spend, I wouldn't be surprised if the firms that spend the least on digital technologies are the ones that are having the least productivity gains. Now that that sounds like music to the ears of people who sell software. Of course, they want to sell more of it. Right. But in order to sell more of it, you have to deliver software that gives people productivity gains so they can afford to pay more of it. Right. Um, and the open letter is flatly saying we're not seeing that happening, but you're raising prices. So what should people do? I think they should take back power by. Um, uh, this is where Milton Friedman's quote comes in, right? Is it, they need to they need to look at competitors. They need to see have value. Yeah, it, it yeah. is. So, so voting with their feet, voting with their dollars, right? Voting with their dollars, with their time, and, and it is an investment, not an expense, right? That this is right. one of those things where, like, we're the industry is crying to the the one person that who they think could make make it better, but it's they're not looking at themselves. So you have to look in the mirror and say, what are we willing to do to put some of our money where our mouth is, right? So that, so that we can actually, and, and I think, you know, this kind of gets back to what you were talking about in school where people are, tra- we're trained to go it alone. There is no like organizing within the industry. I mean, that's what an attempt is being made at with these open letters, right? These firms are getting together. They are talking about this openly which is a right. great step in the right direction, but it, it's just got to go farther than that. But it does, that has to happen a lot more and it needs to happen at those higher levels across industry and not with only within individual firms. I agree. And we're seeing that also with the unionization. That's an, I, I link these two movements together. I think the open letter movement and the unionization movement with the younger architects are completely related. Mm. Um, 
I see them as part of the same overall problem, which is poor economics, um, poor attention to the economics of the architecture industry. And um, I think the academy needs to address that. Yeah, I strongly believe yeah. that the academy. But we're but the firms have to bear responsibility, and they can they're they're making a smart step by organizing together um, with these open letters and reaching out to these you know the equivalent of the AIAs in these other countries in Europe and so forth. Yeah, where is the AIA in this <laughs> here? Uh, yeah, that's a topic for another day. <laughs> it is. It definitely is. Well, Anthony, this has been a fantastic conversation. Is there anything that we've missed that that we should we should finish off with, or have we covered it all? You know, I think we've covered it all. You know, this. You know, this. Um, the economist David mentions, uh, you know, technical interrelatedness, economies of scale, and this quasi irreversibly investment. That last one, that that term, quasi irreversibly investment. This idea that you can't. Um, pull back from where you've gone yeah that you've gone too far the, down the road well uh the economist Tom, thomas soul uh, has this great book on economic fallacies and one of them is um the sunk cost yeah. fallacy yeah. sunk cost yep sunk cost fallacy it's a fallacy yeah you can't pull back i think people need to vote with their dollars mm-hmm. and and organizing and if it, it means taking it to government, I think Europe, the European architects have a very legitimate set of concerns relative to their policymaking over there, which is much more oriented protecting the consumer with data, uh, data ownership. You know, some of the things that they're talking about have to do with American companies buying up European companies. And then where's the data being stored for these European Who customers? Who controls it, right? Who controls it? Yeah. I, this really is about taking control of your own destiny and having the the guts to to be bold and to do that right it is easier to look over there and blame the other uh for your circumstances but um i think it is the call to action to look in the mirror right and to take right. take responsibility absolutely Right. And that brings us to this one final point about the article, which you didn't mention, which I was surprised, which is the section called uh, Superman Syndrome. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Lay that out. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's it's funny because architects are kind of, you know, we, we hear stories about Franklin Wright who wore a cape and gloves and they're superheroes. Mm-hmm. Right. In the world of design, they can tackle anything. But um, they're like Superman. But. When it comes to digital technology and technology in general, they're much more like uh, Superman's alter ego, Clark Kent, extremely conservative and cautious. So in the paper, I mentioned um, this reference to, I think it's a Forbes or Fortune article. That's brilliant. It talks about the old saying, nobody got fired for for buying IBM. Right. And the article explores that. And (laughs) the the excerpt in the article is, of course, the title is like, why didn't they? In other words, they, they probably deserve to, right. right? And there's a great part in, this is a great section in the article, uh, in, in the article I wrote, but it's a, a highly recommended article for anyone who's reading my article to, to read that article. And there's a link to it. Um, because uh, it explains that the history, IBM's history behind that quote had a lot to do with that the company would had a, had a track record and reputation where they would never take on things that they knew they could not deliver on. Right. Right. 
that's a different kind of gravitas than the gravitas that we're hearing these open letter firms talk about with with Autodesk. The gravitas is there is centered around personal security, about making sure that you don't lose your job by going in this other direction with the platform. It's much more self-preservationist. So in terms of being Superman versus Clark Kent, I think we need Clark Kent to go away when it comes to technology. We need to reverse. Actually, the roles for Actually, Clark Kent's probably a better architect for the social well-being of all mankind. And architects would be better off if, when it comes to technology, they acted more like Superman. Mm. In other words, they were much more bold. Um, yeah, that's what I think. And the stakes think- are higher, right? Like, it is not the safe decision, right? Which is what you're talking about. I think I, I heard um, Simon Sinek, who's a, an author, say, I, I believe it was on his Instagram feed, that, you know, Fortune 500 company CEOs make $50 million plus per year. And their job is to keep that job as long as possible. And it is exactly. to not screw with the machine. Those, those companies are set. They're there. They, they're on the list. They're doing well. It took a lot to get there. Don't mess with it. Right? So there's right. very little risk being taken by those CEOs to do something new. And that happens in most firms in across the world right those are the same mentality happens and it's not just the ceos right it's the bim managers it's the it directors and and it's it's safe on top of safe on top of safe on top of safe and that really is you know where there is risk there is the potential for higher reward and failure right so fail fast and and it's it's funny to watch elon take over twitter right it's like fail fast fail every single day and do it in public and it, it it is happening, and at the same time, like that that is a business that has to make money, and it's it's going to be fun to watch how that actually happens, or if it just completely fails. But he's willing to take a forty four billion dollar bet on that, and everybody's back judging that and talking about how stupid it is. But they're also the ones making the safest decisions they possibly can on a day to day basis, right? And so those are yeah. two very different mindsets, and. I don't know that that's a great analogy, but it just it just came to mind. I, I do see the lack of ability to take risks in architecture really driving a lot of the problems mm-hmm. of where architecture is today. Oh, absolutely. And I think the thing that's uh, a, key, a key point made in the nobody gets fired for buying IBM article is that, um, you know, firms that and that encourage their leadership and their employees to take calculated risks, build skills that are very valuable. And I think um, this is really important as we approach the era of AI, where um, the element of human judgment is going to be even more important than ever before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good point. Well, Anthony, this has been, this has been a fun conversation. I'm glad where we, I'm really happy with where that ended too. I I do feel like there is uh, a a wake up call necessary, but these firms have to make that call from themselves. And I I'm hoping, and I'm rooting for the ones that do because uh, the future of the profession depends on it. I, I do think we need to step back and think a lot more if the future of this profession, if the profession deserves to exist in the future it's not going to just get to exist, right? There are many market forces. There are many social forces. There's so many things putting pressure on this profession. 
And it doesn't just deserve to exist because it's always been here. And we have to ask right. ourselves, what do we owe the future of this profession? Uh, and, and for those who are willing to kind of step out of the deadline driven mentality of what day-to-day -day architecture is and work on the profession, uh, I'm rooting for those people for sure. And that, that's a big reason why, why I'm doing what we're, what I'm doing, why you're doing what you're doing, kind of getting people around this water cooler to really discuss these ideas out in the open and, and spread them. So uh, I appreciate what you're doing at Architosh and appreciate you. Yeah. Likewise, I appreciate what you're doing too, with your podcast and everything else you're doing. We're in the same boat. At some level. Yeah. All right. I will put links to where everybody can follow along and uh, to these articles, but also to Architosh and you on social media, the blog, et cetera. So um, anything else that you want to point people toward when uh, when they're looking to follow more what's going on with Architosh? I know Architosh.com. You can find us on Instagram now and um, kind of a new thing and Facebook and LinkedIn and and Twitter. All the socials. Around. Yep. All right. <laughs> as long as Twitter is around, we're, <laughs> stay, we're there. <laughs> All right, man. Until next time. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.